Hello, I'm still Mari. <laughs> Welcome family and this is the Bible reading tonight. We're reading from Mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 9 and then 21 to the end of the chapter. It's on page 1004 in the Bibles in the seat in front of you. The parable of the sower. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat on it out in the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables and his teaching, in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And verse 21, a lamp on a stand. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or in a bed, under a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. The parable of the growing seed. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. A parable of the mustard seed. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when, it, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus calms the storm. That day... When evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? 
Even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm going to invite Jeff to come up and to share what God has laid on his heart, but first we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will open the eyes of our heart to understand the words that you have placed in our scriptures, open our ears to hear, and may we hear a message that speaks directly to our situation, to our place where we are, to the needs that we have, and that grows us deeper and deeper into the soil of your great love. And we pray for Jeff that you will open his mouth, fill him with the Holy Spirit to say the words and tell us the message that you have prepared with him for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I've got to say, um, I've got a bit of a bias for Mark's gospel, as much as you may think I like John's gospel, and I do. But uh, Mark uh, is the first of the gospels and that was written. This genre didn't exist until Mark wrote this. And uh, he writes brilliantly. Frequently when we look at Mark, unfortunately we take a snippet here, a snippet there, when in fact the whole book is one seamless robe of a very dynamic narrative. I want to just give us a taste of this tonight, uh, and you can read the rest of Mark uh, in the light of what we're, we're saying tonight, but basically Mark begins by call, call stories rather than the birth of Jesus. He begins because his interest is in discipleship and what it really is. So he begins with the call, and he calls these disciples into a community, and uh, they're a covenant community, the new covenant, and we've just celebrated that tonight and demonstrated that ourselves. But that's not the end of the story. The purpose of the calling and the community is the third C, the commission. And this section here begins the third part of the book in the first half up to chapter 8, which is all about mission. So mission really didn't begin with William Carey or missionary societies. Really, it was in the, in, in the genius of Jesus when he actually called the first disciples, and we'll see that tonight as we work through this passage, I hope. To understand Mark also, we need to understand that uh, he is playing off the, the sort of assumptions that the average Jew had. They, they really had a view of Israel that was theological geography. It wasn't just a map. And if, for instance, we sort of divided this room up and made a pictorial picture of the Holy Land, then we made the Jordan River, this isle here, then effectively, this is God's country over here, holy land. And uh, I'm up north in the, in the low parts, and Jerusalem would be right up the back, the holy city, and the Sea of Galilee is sort of down here in the front. So that's holy land, Jordan River, and that's the dividing line, and across here is God-forsaken country. <laughs> this is unclean country. You've really got to watch where you sit in this church. And uh, that, that's just to be taken for granted. So tonight I'll be preaching to God's... <laughs> and, um, and the rest of you... Well, that's the way the disciples were brought up. And they, they assumed that. And that's the way they think. Now, the Lord Jesus is really teaching through graphic means here. And that's why he uses parables. They have a way of illustrating deep kingdom principles. And that's what he's trying to do. But he also teaches through 
giving people experiences that they'll never forget to reinforce this preaching. Just come with me on a little lesson here. So here we have Jesus preaching to a crowd and he now moves to get on to the big stuff about the kingdom and the mission of the king. And he tells these four parables in this chapter. The first one is the parable of the soils. And uh, evidently, as we read the bit that uh, I left out there, the, the disciples didn't get it, the parable of the good soils and the good soil multiplies. And they sort of went home and said, well, what was the parable about Jesus? You know? and, uh, but probably on the same day, Jesus, to the crowds, uh, explained um, other parables, but to the disciples he explained them, the crowds just got the parables. And so the first one is that good soil multiplies. That's the nature of the saved person, the real soil that receives the seed of life. And then Jesus tells us another parable about a lamp, the lamp of the light, the lamp of salvation and the message. And uh, he's saying, that's ridiculous. You know, if you, if you light a, a lamp, you don't go and think, oh, we might run out. Let's put it under a bucket, you know. And the disciples will be listening to this going, of course not, you know. Gee, that would be dumb. <laughs> you don't save the light by covering it up. Light is for sharing, not for storing. That's the nature of the parable. Then he tells another one, and he's on a roll, and he tells the one about growth, that, you know, you, you can't make something grow by analysing it. You know, the farmer plants a seed, he goes to bed, he gets up, he goes... And it, growth is a mystery, not a science. It's something that God is doing and we can't see it. It's truly a godly mystery. And then he tells the parable of the mustard seed. And it's this tiny little seed that, you know, it's like a speck, like a flea on your hand, and, but you put it in the ground and you come back later and, my goodness, it's taken over your garden. And it's, it's big and the, the birds of prey can actually land it. This little thing becomes that thing. It's a story of us, of the kingdom, and how God's kingdom, great things, start small. That's the nature of the kingdom. Don't despise the day of small things. That's how it always is. That's the nature. And the disciples would have heard this message and taken it down. They've heard several principles to do with mission. And they say, that was real meat. You know, this guy ought to be at a convention. You know, oh, he's good. And uh, they like it. And Jesus says, you like it, do you? Okay, well, okay, let's, uh, I know it's late, but let's go to the other side. What do you, go to the other side? I mean, they don't know nothing over there. Let's stay with the holy land, with the appreciative people. But Jesus says, no, let's, let's uh, get in the boat, go to the other side. And so we read at the end of the chapter, when it was evening, on this same day, they leave the crowds behind, they get in the boat, and Jesus has plumb tuckered out and he's asleep in no time. He's been giving out all day and he's asleep. Well, they're out rowing, thinking, what? I find it instructive in these text, this text here that it's interesting that it uses the language, leaving the crowd, they took him. In other words, he needed a lift, but their heart isn't in it. They're doing him a favour. He wants to go to the other side. I suppose it can't hurt. Let's do it. That's the spirit in which it happens. And it's very interesting that they're halfway out across this lake, heading from east to west, 
when an incredible storm blows up. They weren't expecting that. And I bet as that storm blew up, they start to get pretty accurate in whom they blame for their predicament. Not only that, but they look around and these waves are filling their boat and crushing. It's like they're trying to go through the surf in the wrong direction. And they're just getting bucketed by these waves. And any minute, they're not going to be able to get the water out. And they're going to go down. And someone gets the idea, let's wake Jesus. You know, we need every hand on deck. Um, And they say, isn't it interesting? They don't say Lord. They say Rabbi, teacher. Don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, (laughs) Rabbi, all this learning and stuff, how about you do something useful with yourself That's what they're saying. Pitch in, help with the bilge pump, grab a bucket, do something useful. And Jesus looks at them and these waves are coming down upon them. And he just stands and he turns to the wind and rebukes it. Get down. Peace, be still, he says. All of a sudden, In that piece, all you can hear is the trickle of the water running out of the rollocks. And everyone is gobsmacked. And then Jesus turns on them. And he says, uh, where's all this fear come from? Next phrase, don't you have any faith? Or why is it you have no faith? No faith in what? That is, he is saying, you don't believe in the commission. All I've been teaching you today is about the power of God's will for mission. But your heart isn't in it. You have no faith in either me or my mission. Here is the first precept, and we're going to land you with a few tonight as we bounce through this tricky text. First precept is, that if we love Jesus as Lord, we should share his priorities. If we believe Jesus as Lord, we should share his priorities, his passions. If we have a little Jesus, we'll have little concern for his priorities. Mission will be a tack on. Well, it's fascinating that just after this, morning is just around the corner and they're over on the left in the country of the Gadarenes, or Gergesa is another word for that area. And uh, the mists start to clear, and the disciples, I don't think, are in a pretty good mood. I mean, they've drenched the skin, and it's been a long night, and things are a bit terse and tense with Jesus. And, but they look out, and they see the country they're heading towards. And suddenly, they've never been to country like this, but... They see the cliffs and the hills in front as they're docking towards that. And it's a graveyard. And there's all these graves posted into the cliffs. It's dead person city. If these good kosher boys hop out of that boat and walk in that direction and stand on that, they're unclean. They can't go to tabernacle. They can't go to feast. They can't. They'll just contaminate anyone they eat with. They're not real keen to go there, but, you know, it's also unclean because as they look out, they see pigs everywhere. 
That's the primary industry in this Gentile, unclean, God-forsaken country. And if they thought it was God-forsaken because of the graves and the pigs, then the one thing that tips them in that favour is the welcoming committee. Because there before them is a guy who is public enemy number one in that area. He is the identified problem in that society. This guy is formidable. He is grotesque. He is demon-possessed. He is the epitome of everything that is unclean by a Jewish definition. And I think they're thinking, I knew this was a God-forsaken ticket that we took with this trip tonight. They're not keen to be there. And if you're a parent in that area, you'd have terrible trouble getting your kid to sleep at night because that's about when he'd start up in the tombs. And he'd so tormented was he, he would be gashing himself and self-mutilating, running around with long beard, totally naked. And they tried to bind him, and they used heavier and heavier chains. And the more they focused upon him, the stronger he became. It wasn't working. And this guy, isn't it phenomenal? This guy, Jesus jumps off the boat into the shallows and he's sploshing towards this guy and this guy runs to Jesus pleading, don't torment me. And he's yelling at Jesus in cords because he is so demon-possessed. You know, this makes death metal sound like a choir boy. And this fellow is under torment in two directions from the legion that inhabits him and the Lord who confronts him. And he pleads and Jesus, the legion of demons within him, says, don't send us out of here. We would understand this cosmic stuff, but they know who Jesus is from before time. They know their master. And they plead, don't send us out of this guy. Don't send us out of the district Send us into the pigs. And what a sight that would have been. You know, a whole primary industry, 2,000 pigs suddenly get demon-possessed and go berserk and race out of the hills and down into the sea and they drown and they're rolling up, belly up. No wonder the herdsmen thought, might be a good time to leave. Let's get out of here. And they go back and they tell their masters what they've just seen, that this year's enterprise is floating in the lake. We're not going to have any pork this year, boys. The market has just fallen off the hill. And this one, this, this uh, village suddenly comes out en masse to see Jesus, to understand this. But they don't see the mission. All they see is that there's been a power contest. And if, if this guy was strong and now he's sitting in his own right mind, then who was the strong man who bound this one? And all they think is in terms of power, raw power, coercive power, not the liberating power of the gospel. And so they beg Jesus to go out of the, the area. But this tells us a couple of principles that I think need to be said and so appropriate in terms of what Peter and Marion have shared with us tonight and the mission that we are supporting. Second precept of mission here is that if we love Jesus as Lord, 
then we must realise that there is no person on this world that's in the too hard basket. Isn't it astonishing that the Lord, who could stay in the holy land where he's appreciated, decides to get into a boat where he's going to travel on a sorry trip and he's going to be rejected and misunderstood, but he's going to liberate one person. That's the God we worship. To trust in Jesus as Lord is to realise that no person is outside his reach or his concern. No one is in the too hard basket. I find it fascinating that as we leave this little scene, this guy is sitting there and, and I know what I would have done. I wouldn't have done what Jesus did. And he can see that you know, it's the end of his life in the village and he so asks the obvious question, um, <laughs> can I come with you guys in the boat? make number 13, I don't know, disciple number 13. And uh, Jesus says, no, I've got something better for you. I want you to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord's done for you. Can you do that? And I think he did from what we read later in Mark. But this is a third precept, that mission, God's mission, does not start with getting into Christian structures. This guy doesn't get wrapped up in cotton wool. He doesn't get taken to a youth group. He doesn't get sent to Bible college. He gets, gets sent home. Because home is where mission starts. It is tough turf. The people at home know you. And they're cynical. And if you can't have credibility, you may never win your family to the Lord, but if they don't respect you, then mission stops there. Our immediate responsibility is to our own kind, and that's the toughest turf we can work on. Prussian precept number three. Well, the next story takes us back, and it's a, a rough, we're not going to spend time. Jesus, in chapter six, goes home, where he goes to the synagogue, and he's treated with contempt. This is Mary's son, Joseph's son, <laughs> masquerading as a rabbi. How dare he? And he's treated with contempt. Right in the middle of that, he decides to then commission the disciples, 12 of them. These 12 are then delegated the same authority that he has had over legion, over the ministry of the opposition, and they're given that authority to go out and preach the gospel and release people from the bondage of the opponent. And they do it. In the middle of that chapter, we're told about John, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that's lived, according to Jesus. And he loses his head to Herod. So, Holy Land is not exactly Happy Valley. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And it's at that point that Jesus, when the disciples come back and start telling the tales of mission, Jesus says, well, just hold on a bit here. I think we need some R&R. Let's get out in the country Let's get in the boat and go down the coast. They're going down the east coast. Well, people know the disciples now. They, they recognise Jesus. So as they're travelling down the water, people are running along the goat tracks along the side of the lake. And they're trying to see where he's going to dock and Jesus pulls in finally and then a crowd arrives. Right when they want to have rest, a crowd arrives. But Jesus, he's a compulsive teacher. He loves to teach. He can't resist the opportunity to explain the kingdom. It's second nature to him and uh, he starts preaching and he goes on a bit so much that we read in this chapter that uh, evening starts to come and it gets a little bit dark around this time 
And uh, now the disciples are very sensible people. And he's teaching them, Mark says, many things. And when it grew late, his disciples then sidle up to him. And now you see they've got delegated authority, so they think they can just waltz in there as his itinerary managers. And they sidle up to him and they basically say, now, <clears throat> just while you're, while you're finishing up here, and he's oh, finishing up? Yeah, um, and look, um, <clears throat> you've had a good day. Don't spoil a good day, right? Yes. People need to get home. Yeah, and the takeaways are just about closed, so just let them go. Okay, okay, just a tip. Finish up now. Okay. Jesus says, <clears throat> fellas, you give him something to eat. Anyway, what I was saying was, and he goes on, and they said, a minute there, I thought he said, you, you get him something to eat. Was it asked? No, no, look, did, no, did you say get him something to eat? Just, yeah, he gave him something. He said, what with? He says, well, go and take an inventory. See what you've got. Anyway, I'll keep preaching. You just take an inventory. Well, they go through and they find we're talking about 5,000 people. They walk through the crowd and all they can muster up, you could fit in a hanky and a few little dry buns, a couple of fish. They would have been good after a day in the sun. And they come back to Jesus, and I think as they presented their inventory to Jesus, they would have been saying, you see, we told you, here's the evidence, can't do it. Okay, let's pack up and go home. It's getting late. And Jesus goes, oh, thanks, that's just all I need. And he takes those things out of their hands, and he starts breaking them, and he looks to heaven, making heaven complicit in what's about to happen here. Heaven's really to blame for this one, boys. And he starts breaking this food. And he starts breaking the fish and then handing it over to them. And he says, just uh, get them organised into little, little clans of 50 and 100. Now, anyone watching that scene in a desolate place of a man preaching God's word, feeding God's people with bread in a desert, would have gone, that's like... Let me try that again. That's like (laughs) Moses. Maybe this is the prophet to come that was like Moses. And that's why Jesus is doing it. He's saying, yeah, Moses speaks of me. And this is the reality. The king has come. But Jesus wants to teach a couple of principles also about mission or the coming of the kingdom, what salvation is. First one is, salvation, fellas, is beyond us. We do not have the wherewithal to provide bread in the desert. We as the church do not persuade people of the ideology called Christianity because that's not what salvation is. Salvation is the miracle of God in deserted parts which have no capacity to save themselves. We do not. Salvation is totally beyond us, but salvation is not beyond him. That's his specialty. Jesus was teaching them that this day. And they're just about to wrap it up and go home, and he says, well, let's, let's clean up before we go. And so they go and clean up the morsels and they find that they can fill, isn't this interesting? How many baskets? Twelve baskets. They've just fed the new Israel, twelve tribes, 
and there's enough food for what? Another Israel. I wonder who they are. You see, Jesus is trying to say to these disciples something which they'll never forget. I don't think I would have ever been able to get my head around. We started with a couple of buns and a couple of sardines and we've ended up with 12 baskets full of edible food. Who's that for? It's saying something about what salvation is. Salvation is not a scarce commodity. It's not a choice between looking after the good people and looking after the undeserving and every bit we give them is a loss to us. That's not the way it works. But I know as a pastor over many years how many times I've been in Christian organisations or in churches or church meetings where people begrudge the budget to mission because we've got a leak in the bathroom or we need more comfortable pews. It's not either or because that's not the nature of salvation. Salvation is not a scarce commodity. We never have to choose between being the church in mission and being the community. Well, right then, Jesus got an idea because Jesus always knows that being taught is a different thing to learning. He's a good teacher, so he throws them into another prac lesson and he said, okay, you got that one? Let's hop into the boat and go, guess where? This side. Let's go to, he says, the other side. Now, it's fascinating right at that point. It says in my text, immediately he made his disciples. Now, that's quite tame. The word is the strongest verb you can use in Greek. It is the word compelled. Jesus got a bit willing with the disciples. Why did he have to compel them? Give you one guess, they were resistant. (laughs) They didn't want to go to the other side. I mean, they remember the last time they went to the other side. Was it really worth it? One guy, and we didn't even get him to Bible college. You let him go. And now you want us to go to the other side at this time of night? Jesus says, get in the boat. They say, oh, come on, let's just be reasonable. Get in the boat. I'm telling you. They said, yeah, yeah, we've heard that. I know, you're probably a bit tired. You don't realise that, you know, there are people here who really... Boat! Now! That's what he's saying. And they said, we don't need to lose your shirt. I mean, just, <laughs> just ask. And they get in the boat. He said, it's going to be different this time. You're going to row. I'm going to stay here. You're sailing solo tonight. Let's see what you know. And he puts them out in practice lesson number two. He goes up the hill and he holds them in prayer. He can see what they're doing and he knows what they're made of. But they're going to learn one way or the other about his kingdom mission. So they head off. They're heading towards Bethsaida, just the other side of the Jordan River. It's right there. It's on the west side. And as they're going along, I think I would have loved to have been fly on the wall of that boat. There would have been a fair bit of muttering. <laughs> Who's he think he is? And especially because the wind picks up and it's in their backs. Have you ever tried to row a boat into the wind? It's like riding a bike into the wind up a hill. And they're putting in two strokes for every metre and hardly moving. Jesus can see them struggling. And about the middle of the night, they've been going for hours, making hardly any headway across the lake. 
And they're getting pretty edgy about this. And I think that they're mutually, they're all in unity about this one thing. The unity that they have is that they believe that God isn't in this trip. If God was behind this, it'd be a cinch. The breeze would be with us, right? Yeah. God's not in this. I don't know how many times I've been a pastor where people have made that sorry deduction. But when you're in the eye of God's will, more likely than not, you'll be in the eye of the storm. To follow Christ is to follow him into enemy territory and the enemy doesn't want to give up his turf that easily and he'll put up any fight he can, any distraction, any diversion, get you operating on other issues. It's never easy. How do you know you're heading into God's direction? Well, if you're finding it hard, you're probably going the right way. That's the way we should be thinking. Precepts number six is that mission is always an opposed work. But isn't it fascinating that in the middle of this, right then, Jesus leaves his post and the wave trotter starts plodding out across the waves into the wind. And these disciples are pulling and making hardly any progress. I mean, they're pretty tough guys. They're working men, but they are really coming to the end of their rope. And Jesus wraps himself up in his cloak and he's walking into the wind and sploshing across the waves and up the wave and down the wave. And as they're pulling out, they look across to the port this night and they see this figure and Jesus sees them. Hi, boys. Nice night for a roar. <laughs> and they see him. And they're thinking, one plus one equals five. I mean, Jesus makes enemies. He divides the crowd. If only he knew how to be inclusive. Last time, you know, his own cousin has just had his head taken off. He should have kept his head down. And they assume... Because the last time they went there, they headed towards the place of the dead, that this is a spirit of Jesus heading towards the death place. Not a bad assumption if you've got Jesus wrong. If you think like a mere man, it's not a bad assumption. But then we read these classic words in this text where Jesus, it says, intended to pass them by. That was the lesson. He intended to pass them by. He wanted to put them into this predicament where it was tough, where it was draining, where it was frustrating. So he would pass by and they would know a lesson for life that whenever you go into mission, when you arrive, he's already there. He's already at work. He's already orchestrating the success of the ministry. He's working before the missionary ever arrives. In fact, if that wasn't the case, then we'd be wasting our time in mission. We'd be belting our heads against the corner of a brick wall. But that's the joy of mission as we enter into this month, as we consider ourselves in this, 
We have got to come to realize that the purpose of the church is to be close to Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's heading to the other side. Jesus does not stay whereas it's cozy and holy and appreciative. He is the God that moves to the other side regardless. If we really want a close relationship with Jesus, we too must move in that direction to the other side where it is inconvenient, where you mix with people who are unlovable and unlovely, where it is tough, where you wonder if you're losing your sanity. That's Christian mission. And that's not just a supplement that's added on to the community. That's the purpose of us, the community of Christ. That's the church. Not the church needs a little bit of help from mission societies. That is the church and what it works. Years ago, I want to finish with a little story. I'm sorry I'm going on, but I saved this one up for you. I hope I haven't told it to you privately, but years ago when I was a pastor, we had a young couple, people your age, not my age, and uh, John and his wife Kate, she was American, he was a boy from Maui, and he was a computer expert. He wrote software for a medical software company, doing well. But the Lord had placed a seed in their heart that there was this opening of opportunity in the great yellow land of the Middle Kingdom, China. And they saw an opening there to use their skills. She was a nurse educator in that place. And they wanted to go to a place that was tough, where the gospel hadn't been heard. They found a place on the map which the only time they heard the gospel was in the days of Marco Polo. In this particular place, they ended up working with a a mission team from the US, and they decided to go and do a reconnaissance trip to check out whether there was any openings. What's happening here, you know, get the lay of the land, a bit of reconnaissance before they really committed. And uh, they ended up in this city, or was actually regarded just not a large city of 10 million, an agricultural city in the north. It was around sweeping plains and dust mountains used to just appear with the latest wind and then disappear the next day. Really interesting place. Cattle country. And uh, they arrived and they got up in the next morning and this place and they decided to have a little quiet time together and they got out there a little every day with Jesus book and they were reading. And they read the little story in this Jesus book about Mephibosheth. Do you ever read that one out of Second Samuel about David's? Enemy, Saul, has a son, and he's got two deformed feet. He can't walk. And uh, David has buried the hatchet with Saul, and he takes this fellow in, and he says, you'll eat at my table for the rest of your life. The table of the king. They said, well, that's an interesting story. Um, thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, uh, bless us as we go. And they went into the city this day, and they thought they'd go to a tourist centre or local council. And when they arrived at the city, it happened to be like a May Day parade. Bodies everywhere in the main street. They just had their packs on. They couldn't make any way through the street. And as they, they, they suddenly decided, we'll have to go some other way. So they went down the alleyway behind the main buildings where there were all these big skips and rubbish bins and rats and it was dark and dingy. As they were walking down, they saw this guy coming towards them this day. And he was walking with crutches. He's walking towards them and when he saw them and he recognised that they were Western people, he doubled his gait. 
There was only one person on the team had any Mandarin at all, and, and they could barely make out that this fellow was inviting them to his house, and he said, you must come to my house, I have something to tell you. And they think, well, this is interesting. They went to his house, and they found out here's a, a common labourer in the sale yards. His job was to fill the, the cattle trucks and... One day he'd had these, these cattle and he's been filling these do- double-decker cattle trucks as they take them out of the area and take them right around China. And he was, had his cattle prod. He had a stubborn heifer that just wouldn't move that last bit into the truck. So he got up and gave her a shock and uh, this, cattle, this, this, this cow just rolled over onto him, fell off, crushed his legs. They pulled him out. They washed him to the dispensary. They had very rudimentary medicine in this place. Uh, basically they could roll bandages and mercurochrome and that's about it. And they said, well, we're going to have to lop these off at the knees. Um, you know, can't do anything with this. And someone remembered that there happened to be an Australian trade delegation in town hitching up some beef deals, beef export-import deals, right this time. And so they said, go to the motel. It was like a a Hilton-type level hotel. And this guy, the orderly, ran off to the hotel to find these Australians. He came back 10 minutes later. and They said, well, did they have a doctor amongst them? Any help? He said, no, they only had this orthopedic surgeon. They said, you idiot, go and get him. And they, they raced off and they brought this bloke back and he laid this guy out in their rudimentary operating theatre and as carefully as he could, they, they moved the bones around to, to re-knit. Well, he then left the guy there and about three days later he went in. This fellow had been knocked out for that amount of time. And he's coming to and, and the, the, the labourer guy, the Chinese guy, wanted to speak to this Aussie fellow. And the Aussie fellow went up to him and he is, is in the hospital... And, and, he, and, he, and he said to uh, the, the labourer, grabbed his hand, and he said, I just don't understand one thing. Why is it that a guy like you, a Western man, an educated man, a talented man, would do something like this for me? I am just a peasant. There are millions of us. I don't matter. This guy through the communist interpreter, said to him, well, I can't tell you much now. I can tell you that the love of a man called Jesus Christ constrains me to do this. And I'm also sure that if he has made me do this, then he will find you. And this day, as our friends given up their computing and nursing careers, bumped into him in that alleyway. Five minutes later, he is just as much a brother of the kingdom as you or I ever will be. The Lord is still crossing the lake. And he would love that we had the option of seeing that sort of thing happen in our lives because he is working in our workplace. He's working in our families. He's working in our streets. He's working in our sports club. He's already orchestrating the rendezvous. And if you really want to live a life that has the whiff of the kingdom about it, throw caution to the wind and follow him across the lake. It's the only way to live.
I invite you to make that commitment in your own minds and hearts this night. Not that you would be necessarily a missionary with a mission society, but that you would be instrumental in God's lake-crossing enterprise. Because that's the heart of Jesus. He will do anything to release one person from the grip of that stinker, the devil. But is there anything you can do on this planet that matches that? It's worth spending your life doing it, I think. Is it not? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this time in history. We keep on getting told that everything is against us. We keep on getting told that we're on the wrong side of history. We keep on getting told that people aren't interested in faith things anymore, but you know better, Lord. This country is yours. The world is yours. It is ripe for the picking, and you are the harvester. We simply want to say that tonight, Lord, that you have our hands, our feet. You have all we are. As you have given your body for us, we give you our total selves in response. This night we simply say, take us, make us, but above all, use us. Let us not waste our lives, mark and time, but take us with you whichever way you want to go. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. In your hands. Thanks, John. Uh, what an amazing message. And um, yeah, what is, what is God called?